Welcome to the Power Podcast. I'm your host, Malia Warner. This is episode 78. Hi, friends, and welcome. We are continuing the summer series of the Power Podcast. I am giving you free bonus audio samples from the audio version of my newly released memoir, Lies of the Magpie. It is Amazon's hot new release in motherhood, in postpartum depression, in psychology, in a lot of areas. Today we are going to dive right into chapters 28 and 29. Chapter 28 is emergency surgery. Chapter 29 is minivan caravan. And I just have to say the minivan caravan was a really, really fun section to write. One of my goals with this book was just to try to capture the day-to-day life of a mother and family and just the chaos. It's so hard to put that into words. Just the noise and the commotion and the neediness and just life events that happen. And then you add on extended family and holidays and special events and it just gets more and more complicated. And I really believe women are tough cookies and it is never one thing that breaks us. It is always a culmination of a lot of things. And then there's just finally the one straw that breaks your back altogether. And so this was a fun chapter to write to just try to capture the chaos of family life. So I hope that you enjoy these chapters 28 and 29. Chapter 28, Emergency Surgery. The gremlins of the universe have discovered that print deadline is the third weekend of every month. And those imps have figured out how to manipulate time so that any crisis coming our way falls exactly on that weekend. On the third Friday in November, a car pulls in front of our house and delivers Danny from his after-school playdate. Danny slams the front door and drops his backpack in the middle of the kitchen floor where it lands with a thud. Danny, what have you got in there? He unzips his pack and one at a time removes every book from the 32-volume Magic Treehouse set, one of the presents for his seventh birthday last month. Danny lifts the stack but flinches in pain. Mom, when I cough or sneeze, my stomach hurts right here, he pats his lower stomach. Did you fall or get hit anywhere today? When I jumped down from the monkey bars, it hurt really bad. Let me take a look. Aaron kneels and Danny lowers his shorts. His groin is swollen to the size of a small cantaloupe. Aaron and I look at each other. It's after 5 p.m. Our pediatrician's office is closed for the weekend. I'll take him to the emergency room at Del Webb, Aaron offers. No, not Del Webb. I have heard too many horror stories lately about the ER there. At church, Crystal had recounted the nightmare of taking her son to the Del Webb emergency room over the weekend. He was unconscious and burning up, and they still waited five hours. Rachel, my piano student slash newspaper reporter, told me about a man who had died in line waiting to be seen. Drive him to Phoenix Children's. It will take an hour to get there, but you'll see a doctor faster. When Aaron carries Danny through the automatic doors at Phoenix Children's Hospital, the staff wastes no time ushering him in for tests. Aaron calls from the triage room. Danny has a testicular torsion. He is scheduled for immediate surgery. 
Making an uncommon exception to standard procedure, a surgeon arrives at the hospital to perform the midnight operation. A few more hours and they wouldn't have been able to save the testy. Interesting how for appendicitis, heart trauma, or any other organ, the patient would have waited out the night for a surgeon's daytime working hours. But not in this case. When it comes to saving man parts, those surgeons take the area pretty seriously. The next morning, Aaron reports that Danny is out of bed and happily exploring the playroom. If his vitals are good, they'll release him this afternoon. Thank you for being there with him, I tell Aaron. Today was supposed to be Aaron's time to lay out the December magazine. There's no choice but to pack Kate, Tanner, and Jack into the van and drag them along with me to my last-minute business visits. They wait in the car with the air conditioner running while I gather approval signatures on final ad proofs. Mom, I'm bored, Kate moans after the third stop. Guys, I know, you're being so patient. Danny arrives home with an armful of new stuffed animals and gift bags of goodies, giving us the impression he's coming home from an amusement park rather than a hospital. We are updated on all the fabulous amenities offered at PCH, including a study table in the game room where you could do schoolwork, which Danny did even though it was Saturday and he didn't miss any school. You should go there, Danny tells Kate. She can hardly wait. Aaron has nothing but good to say about the experience. Everybody was amazing. They got us right in and knew exactly what they were doing. I'm so glad you said to go there. If I'd taken him to Del Webb and waited for hours, we might have a 50% less chance of being grandparents. Aaron's positive report causes me to think about Kate's tonsillectomy. Maybe the insurance glitch happened for a reason. There have been so many stories lately of botched procedures on kids at Del Webb Hospital. And who's to say it's their fault? In Sun City West, they're equipped to deal with heart attacks, kidney failure, and diabetes. Phoenix Children's specializes in kids. Their surgical tables and equipment are sized for kids. Does Del Webb even have smaller surgical instruments? Or do they force adult-sized scalpels down children's throats? Maybe Danny's surgery is a sign to find a different doctor for Kate, one who does tonsillectomies at Phoenix Children's instead of Del Webb. Aaron stays awake all night Sunday finishing the Christmas issue. In the morning, I meet him in the office where he hands me the printed stack of pages to proofread. I'm going to sleep for a few hours. Wake me up when you're done proofing and I'll upload it to the printers. Danny wakes Monday morning on his own and is dressed and ready 15 minutes early. He can hardly wait to share the details of his emergency hospital visit for first grade show and tell. If I were a responsible mother, I might escort him to class and warn his teacher, but I'm pushed up against a deadline. What will Mrs. Gordon do when Danny walks boldly to the front and tells his classmates the story of his engorged testicle? The stage glows inside a halo of white holiday lights and garland. From the ninth row back, my eyes scan the room assessing decorations for tonight's piano recital. Laya holds her thumb in front of her nose, taking a visual measurement between the two poinsettia plants, making sure they are an equal distance from the microphone. The piano lid is raised, the donuts and hot chocolate are set to serve, but I am not at all ready for this, my final piano recital. I collapse into the seat, my head bonking on the back of the wooden bench. All day my body has struggled to move. 
Last night, I thought the body aches were from stress combined with the sadness of abandoning my students. The weekend of Danny's surgery threw me behind schedule and I haven't been able to catch up since. His emergency is what ultimately led me to decide to stop teaching piano lessons. Our life has no wiggle room for unexpected incidents. And with kids, there are always unexpected incidents. Finally coming to terms with what I'd been denying for too long, my piano students received, in the same envelope, an invitation to the Christmas recital as well as an official note announcing December as my last month of teaching. The phone calls followed. Mrs. Vanderhost begged me to please keep Brianna. She's never found anything she loves so much as piano. She's completely changed. She's confident. Her grades are straight A's now. I hung up the phone, slid down the cabinet into the pile of napkins Jack had pulled from the dispenser, folded my head over my knees, and wished for the kind of good cry that would make me feel better. But I hadn't been able to cry. Lyra reminded me that most women are achy and tired while breastfeeding. It's normal, she said. But this morning my throat felt like I'd swallowed a belt sander and left it running all night. On the way to pick up recital refreshments, I stopped into the newly opened urgent care, swearing that if the doctor asked me one thing about a newborn or slightly hinted at the word antidepressant, I might burn the building down. Certainly, a sore throat could not be mistaken for postpartum depression. The physician probed my neck and shined her spotlight onto the dark recesses in the back of my throat. Whew, your glands are swollen. By the looks of things back there, I'm 99% certain you have strep throat, but our lab technician is gone for an extended weekend, so I could make you wait and come back Monday for the throat swab and culture to be 100% certain, or I could give you a prescription now and you'll be better by Monday. Give me the drugs, please, I'd said. Taking an antibiotic was nothing like taking an antidepressant. She handed me the script with a caution that I'd be contagious for 24 hours after swallowing the first pill. Here I am, six hours later, greeting parents and students, shaking hands and passing out programs, trying not to breathe germs when I hug them and say Merry Christmas, which is a challenge since this is the last time I will see many of them. Chapter 29. Minivan Caravan we celebrate an early Christmas at home on December 19th, which is also Day of the Deadline, a time when Aaron and I walk around like the living dead. The sun is barely up when the kids jump onto our bed shouting about presents in the living room. Santa left a note! Danny shoves a paper into my face, but I already know what it says. Using my best Santa penmanship I had written, Dear Warners, thought you might not have room in your van to bring everything home from Utah, so I delivered a few gifts early. Santa. An hour later, the family room looks like a shaken snow globe. Flurries of wrapping paper, ribbons, bows, and packaging float through the air among squeals of excitement. While the kids play, Aaron disappears into the office and returns with the rough draft of our January issue. Good luck proofreading. Let me know when you finish. Wearing shorts and a t-shirt, he goes outside to get the yard work done before we leave town. The kids, also wearing shorts and tees, take their new Christmas toys outside to play on the sunny patio. Two days and a ten-hour drive later, we are bundled nose-to-toes in snow gear and are tubing down Aaron's favorite childhood sledding hill. I didn't want to travel to Utah for Christmas this year. 
The strep throat on top of everything else made staying home tucked in bed seem like the greatest Christmas gift in the world. But all month I crossed off squares of the December calendar, waiting for the opportune moment to speak these rehearsed words. Aaron, let's have Christmas at home. Which I finally mustered the courage to speak at midnight on December 19th, while packing our suitcases. By then, the wheels were already in motion and it was too late to stop the trip. The only thing my words accomplished was creating a tense 10-hour drive. And here's the very reason I didn't want to travel to Utah. On December 26th, I'm hauling the last suitcases up the stairs of my in-law's house when I hear Aaron answer his cell phone. We're leaving in about an hour, he speaks into the phone. Sure, that'd be great. Where do you want to meet up? Sure thing. See you then. Bye. He puts the phone in his pocket. That was your mom. They're getting ready to leave and wondered if we want a caravan. They aren't leaving until tomorrow. I prop the suitcase against the wall and go to the bottom of the stairs for the duffel bag. Your brother got extra time off work, so everybody wants to leave a day early. The entire day family clan, the whole fam damly as the expression goes, is coming to spend New Year's in Arizona. There will be somewhere around 36 people, each time I count I come up with a different number, and Denise and I are housing and feeding them all. The duffel bag on my shoulder bangs the stair railing as I pound up the stairs. We have to leave now, I shout. Put this in the car. Grab the kids. Aaron steps back when the duffel bag hits his chest. I send the kids through a hasty assembly line of goodbye hugs and kisses and leave my in-laws with their mouths gaping open at our speedy departure. Aaron is confused, but I absolutely must get to my house before company arrives. There's no milk in the fridge. The mantle will be dusty. Aaron also lives in the house, but when company comes, anything dirty, moldy, smelly, or out of stock is a reflection on me. Come on, come on! My leg bounces as I hold the front door waving for Aaron, who loiters talking with his dad. I'm a cowgirl digging spurs into her horse's flanks. My horse may be a 2001 Ford minivan, but still, the bandits are hot on my tail. Once we're cruising in a rhythm on the freeway and Jack has fallen asleep, I shift my weight in the seat and lean my head back, which loosens a mass of sinus drainage and triggers another coughing fit. Usually, antibiotics work like a charm for me, and in two days, I feel so much better that it's hard to take the full 10-day prescription, though I always do. This time, I've finished the 10 days of antibiotics, but don't feel any better from the strep throat. As we approach Las Vegas, Aaron's phone rings. It's my brother, Carl. They've caught up to us. They want to meet up for lunch, Aaron whispers to me. I shake my head, but hear Aaron say, We'll meet you at the Burger King off the exit. I glare at Aaron. The kids have to eat, he shrugs. The cousins ignore their fries in favor of chasing each other around the playland. My stomach churns nauseous thinking about the amount of snot and germs that have been wiped inside those slides. So help me if extended family spends the week battling stomach flu in my bathrooms. After eating, the cousins trade vehicles according to age groups for the duration of the trip. Our parade of minivans snakes around the Grand Canyon looking like a circus train brimming with luggage and the hands and feet of wild monkeys waving wildly out the window. We make it to Wickenburg, Arizona before the kids start fighting about who gets to use the bathroom first when we get home. 
Jack wakes up crying. Should we stop so you can feed him? Aaron asks. We could tell your family where to find the spare house key. No, I have to get to my house before my company does. I need to make sure bank account statements are hidden away and that our preferred method of family planning is not sitting on the bathroom counter. No stopping. Drive faster. Rummaging through the diaper bag, I find stray Cheerios and pieces of broken graham cracker to appease Jack. By the time we turn off Grand Avenue, my nerves are beyond frazzled. Aaron is hunched over the steering wheel, his knuckles white. The most appealing thing in the world would be to take a steamy shower and clear up my clogged sinuses, soothe my aching muscles, then slide on pajamas and bury myself under my own bed covers. What am I going to feed all these people for dinner? The convoy of vehicles converges around our house like a SWAT team. Kids fall out of car doors, invoking images of clowns spilling out from Volkswagens, and begin doing a cross-legged jumping routine. What must look like a bizarre tribal ritual to the neighbors peering discreetly through cracks and blinds is actually a potty dance. Dad, hurry! The kids shout, squeezing their legs tighter. The key to the front door falls from my hand. Jack in his car seat is deposited on the kitchen tile while I wash and disinfect my hands. His little face is red with hunger and anger. His droopy diaper makes him weigh twice as much as usual, but he'll never make it through a diaper change. Food first. Settling into breastfeeding base camp, I whisper in his ear, adjusting my shirt so he can latch on before he hyperventilates. There is noise in the kitchen, my terrain, and my head shoots up, nose sniffs the air, shoulders raise, neck hairs stand alert. The refrigerator is open. I'm a territorial dog tracking a trespasser. Mom, I'm hungry. What's for dinner? Close the fridge, I order. Go clean out the van. The kids scatter to the playroom and dump out the toy buckets. The sound of the fridge opening again alerts my ears. Close that fridge, I yell. My sister-in-law, Caroline, turns to me sheepishly and closes the fridge. I'm sorry, I thought you were the kids. What do you need? My tone of voice changes, but my claws have come out like switchblades. Malia, do you have any milk? What I want to say is this. Yes, I have milk, but it's being used at the moment. Can you wait your turn? Instead, I say pointedly to remind everyone that I have not been home for a week. We got rid of the milk before we left for Christmas. Didn't want sour milk. Let me finish feeding Jack and I'll go to the store. Laya breezes in looking refreshed and perfect, not travel weary at all. She sits on the arm of the couch. What's stopping Caroline from going to the store? She has two arms and a driver's license. Meanwhile, my bladder is rolling like a water balloon, threatening to burst, and I consider carrying Jack to the bathroom and relieving myself while he eats. But judging by the continual toilet flushes, the lineup from my two bathrooms is wrapping down the hallway. Caroline fills her toddler's sippy cup with ice water instead of milk. The ice and water dispenser on my fridge has been grinding nonstop since we came in. The sink is piling up with used cups my guests falsely assuming that I have enough drinking glasses for them to luxuriously dirty one now, toss it in the sink, and get a new, clean glass for dinner. Next, it's Aaron who pulls the fridge door open, assessing the depravity of our grocery situation. My fridge is being ransacked while I'm trapped in breastfeeding confinement. 
I'll run and grab milk, Aaron says. What else do we need from the store? My nerves spike like quills on a porcupine. Why won't everyone just chill and wait 15 minutes? I wish for the superpower to freeze everybody where they are so I can finish breastfeeding in peace. What we need is for everybody to go away, Lya gripes under her breath. There are so many things we need from the store. Probably a two-hour shopping trip with multiple carts filled to the brim. But at this moment, other than milk, I can't think of a single item. I reach back into my brain and try to access the mental shopping list I'd made before leaving town, but my brain is too fragmented. Pieces of my cerebral cortex are still in Christmas. Some got stuck in the printer jam with my piano recital program. Other bits are hanging out at the mailing office with our January magazine. And I'm sure there are remnants I never brought home from the hospital after Jack was born. Aaron, can't you wait a bit? I need one minute of solitude to gather my brain cells, or at least muster the few remaining troops. No one is going to die of starvation in the next five minutes. I'll just go get milk and you can do the rest of the shopping later. Aaron grabs the other set of car keys and charges out the front door. No! I shout, but I'm not sure if I scream out loud or in my head. I don't want to do the rest of the shopping later, but he's already gone headed for the peace and tranquility of the grocery store, leaving me alone in this den of starving lions. Malia, where do you want this? My good-hearted nephew lumbers in under the weight of two large suitcases. He is single-handedly unloading my van. A call comes from down the hall. Malia, where do you keep more toilet paper? Toilet paper! I'd forgotten to buy toilet paper. Aaron! I yell, out loud for sure this time. The shout startles Jack, who comes unlatched and pauses briefly, scrunching up his face before breaking into the full howl we'd listened to for the last hour of the car ride. Benji, I call to my nephew, go see if Uncle Aaron drove away yet. If not, tell him we need toilet paper. Benji calls from the front door. He already left. Jack's powerful cries loosen something in his belly. He grunts and bears down. Three days of constipation. This is going to be a doozy. Aunt Malia! My niece enters holding a box of mutilated crayons in her pinched fingers like she's found a dead animal. Tanner had this in his mouth. The box is ripped and soggy, punctured into the shape of a toddler dental imprint. Tanner runs into the room and bares his teeth, revealing a rainbow Crayola grin. The tips of several new crayons are wedged between his canines. And he smells bad, she complains. Poor Tanner. He hasn't had his diaper changed since our Vegas break almost six hours ago. That's embarrassing, Lya quips. Now all your sisters-in-law will know that Tanner isn't potty trained yet. He's two and a half. A glance at the microwave clock tells me it's almost 7.30 p.m. We'd been on the road for over 12 hours when we usually made it in under 10. My parents drive the speed limit. Without caravanning, I could have gotten home two hours ago and grocery shopped already. Watch out! A panicked voice calls from the garage. An enormous crash is followed by the ricochet of spilling toys. The taller cousins have reached up to the highest shelf and dumped out the bin of toys that I'd spent weeks sorting and cleaning to donate to Goodwill. 
Now they will be mixed with the other toys and made dirty again. The decibel level in my house thunders louder than a rock concert, but it's not louder than the rumble which pulls my attention back to the infant in my lap. In the nick of time, I pull Jack away from my breast and hold him over a blanket as a three-day sewage backup erupts and brown goop oozes out of his pants. Heading for my bedroom and the changing table, I am holding Jack like hazardous waste at arm's length in front of me when my sister-in-law passes me in the hallway. Malia, just tell me what you want me to do for dinner and I'll do it. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Laya mimics her like a parrot, then turns to me. Remember that talk we had about planning ahead? Here's the perfect example of how you could be better organized. People were expecting you to be more prepared, especially Aaron. Ooh, she shivers as if a chill crawled up her spine just thinking about it. You could sense how stressed out and disappointed he was when he left for the store. Right there in the hallway, I share with Laya a joyful hallucination in which I pick up the phone and order a dozen pizzas. Enough different types of pizza that every niece, nephew, cousin, brother, sister-in-law, parent, and any homeless person who might wander in unnoticed will shut up and eat. Laya interrupts my delivery daydream to remind me of my place in the too-poor-to-order pizza club. Our bank account is already behind from Christmas. Quitting piano means no lesson income for January, and I haven't yet accrued enough ad revenue to replace Aaron's Cloverman income. I don't have enough money to buy pizza for this crowd. Laya tries to be helpful. Quit whining. You can brainstorm something cheap and simple to make for dinner, but it should be moderately fancy. These are your guests. Laya is not dishing out anything I haven't asked her to lay on me. I have to figure out how to quit letting people down. My sister-in-law shadows me into the bedroom where I lay an old towel over the changing table and peel Jack like a spoiled banana. Hmm, what sounds good for dinner? I say, faking nonchalance. We've been snacking so much on the drive, I don't feel very hungry. In truth, I am a ravenous and imagine Aaron with barbecue tongs pulling a thick steak off the grill, which I grab with bare hands and devour on the spot, then reach out for a second. In the end, we eat plain spaghetti, no meatballs, and green beans from a can, all stuff from the pantry. After dinner, I spend an hour wiping marinara sauce off the walls, chairs, carpet, and couch. On the last night with our house guests, I use the stockpile of coupons the owner of China Gourmet has been giving me to pay for her ad. One phone call and the restaurant delivers rice for a battalion. My mother offers a blessing on the food, and I pray in my heart that Aaron will miraculously find something among the multiple trays of Chinese food that he'll want to eat. As people fill their plates, I run sprints between the garage and the kitchen, grabbing ranch dressing, ketchup, bread with butter and jam, all the day family essentials that don't come standard with an international meal. At last, I land in a corner seat with what remained of the sweet and sour pork. On the other side of the garage, Aaron mashes a plastic spoon into his untasted food. He seems like a stranger to me. We've hardly spoken in days. Anise carries her half-finished plate toward me. You're over here by yourself. She pulls out the metal folding chair next to me. These past five days, our only conversations have been about who was going to sleep, eat, shower, and be entertained, where, when, and how. 
The kids' table is my level tonight. I try to make a joke. Are you okay, Malia? Anise asks. She isn't making light table talk. She is asking sincerely. I'm just... What are the words? There's no description for what is wrong with me. My feet move, my arms work, but I'm dragging my body like Linus drags his blue blanket. This is something I've never experienced before. I'm tired in a way I've never been tired before. My bone marrow is tired. The best answer I come up with to Anissa's question is, I'm just so tired. Last November, our friends Marcia and Keith hosted all of their extended family for Thanksgiving. When Marcia surfaced several days later, I asked how the weekend had gone. She told me, in a still weary voice, that they had used every linen in the house, every sheet, pillowcase, hand towel, dish rag, washcloth. We did not have a crumb of bread or a drop of milk left. For three days, I did nothing but get things for people. When they left, Keith and I went to bed and slept for two days. My parents are the last to leave. My dad bends down for his hug. I hope I have your mom convinced that we should buy a house and move down here during the winter. My back can't handle shoveling snow like it used to. We wait until their car disappears around the corner. Back in the house, I stare at the empty rooms. My family has gone, taking their piles of luggage and their comforting distraction. What now? I fantasize about crawling back into bed, wrapping myself around a pillow, and sinking into deep sleep. Laya emerges from the hall holding two hangers of possible business outfits. Part of our Get Malia Organized plan is to choose wardrobe in advance so I don't waste precious minutes, my rarest commodity, stuck in the closet, hemming and hawing over what to wear. Today, I have to get tear sheets delivered. Per Bob's praxis, each month we hand carry to each customer a copy of the newest issue with a tear-out page showing their ad along with an invoice. Green slacks or purple skirt? Laya alternately holds out the options. Kate taps my leg. Mom, play a game? She holds a deck of old maid cards. Behind her, Tanner waits, eyes lit with excitement, eager to be included in the game, hopeful to be dealt a hand including his favorite card, Postman Pete. The kids have one more week of school break. They have been entertained and distracted for 14 days, smothered with attention and drowning in play. Mommy has so much to do today. Kate's chin drops to her chest. The sparkle falls from her face. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening. If you haven't yet gone to Amazon to leave a review for Lives of the Magpie, remember to do that. And as always, I will meet you back here next week for another great episode of The Power Podcast. Bye, friends.